Before the investigations, before the censures, before the gag orders, before the sacking and before the fight in court, there was just Dr Peter Ridd and the Great Barrier Reef. I've been studying the Great Barrier Reef since 1984, so uh, well over 30 years now. But on the 2nd of May 2018, Peter Ridd was sacked as Professor of Physics at Townsville's James Cook University. It was the culmination of years in which Peter had been put through hell by his employer. Investigations, disciplinary proceedings, warnings, censures, findings of serious misconduct. His crime? Speaking out against the orthodoxy that climate change is killing the Great Barrier Reef. Well, I don't think the, the reef is in any particular trouble at all. In fact, I think it's probably the best, one of the best um, protected ecosystems in the whole world and, and virtually pristine. And calling out the sloppy scientific standards that have convinced everybody otherwise. Peter became a target of his university, who would stop at nothing to try and silence him. Some fairly horrible times of, of essentially being chased, having your emails uh, read, um, extremely officious meetings. It was like being hunted. But rather than go quietly, Peter decided to fight. This is a story about the state of climate science. There's just some absolute rubbish being spoken about the reef. About the state of Australian universities. The systems of control and, and, and management within universities are pushing against academic freedom all the time. It's a story about university administrators determined to suppress the truth. They um, did everything they could to, to shut Professor Red down. About Peter's eventual win and the next stage of Peter's fight. I'm Gideon Rosner, and this is The Heretic, inside Peter Ridd's fight for freedom of speech on climate change, presented by the Institute of Public Affairs and produced by Saul Muscatel and Mitchell Schomburg. One of the most noticeable things about Peter Ridd's house in Townsville is the chickens. The clucking comes from a coop belonging to Peter's next door neighbour and seems to be more or less permanent background noise, especially in the mornings. He's a good neighbour but we do have to tolerate these chickens. Yeah. Normally by about two o'clock, they're, they're definitely calmed down. The house itself is a typical Queenslander. High set with a large veranda at the back overlooking Peter's garden, in which he spends a lot of his time. His swimming pool, long just used, has been turned into a giant pond with a suite of vegetation and several species of fish. It's a house befitting a lifelong lover of nature. It's not some dark lair of somebody who the left likes to refer to as a big bad climate denier. Peter has never fitted in with that particular caricature. I come from an environmentalist family. I've been members of an environmental organisation. I was the president of the local wildlife preservation mm. society for a short period of time. I'm not, a, I'm not an anti-environmentalist. I'm, I'm a, probably a disillusioned environmentalist mm. because I see where the environmental movement has gone but I'm absolutely for you know, preserving the environment, as are most Australians, in fact. I'm a physicist who um, worked on electromagnetic theory, um, working on ways of detecting minerals and water tables underground. And uh, then almost by accident, I got a job at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, uh, working on oceanography, movement of water, development of instrumentation um, with regard to the Great Barrier Reef. This was in the 1980s. And when did your involvement with JCU first start? So my involvement with James Cook University started in 1978 um, when I, I enrolled as a, an undergraduate physics student. So I've been there 40 years. And then you uh, subsequently became an academic with JCU? Yes, uh, I became a uh, postdoctoral fellow in 1980, 
eight or nine and then became a full academic right up to uh, a professor when I was finally fired. And you were a supervisor of PhD? Oh yes, about 30 PhD students over the years, um, you know, thousands of undergraduate students. And you were recognised for that? Oh yeah, I, I actually got a, a Supervisor of the Year award. Um, I'm not sure whether I really deserved it, but yes, I had a lot of. Uh, I'm sure good, you deserved it. <laughs> I had a lot of good good PhD students. It was very enjoyable um, so, working with them. So, needless to say, uh, your students adored you, or, uh, from what I can tell. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that, but I certainly keep up to date with a lot of them, and uh, they've done very well. I've got two vice chancellors as my PhD students. And uh, quite a few of them have done very well scientifically, and I'm very proud of them all. Peter's students did, in fact, adore him. Hadassah Harland is a former student. She sits down with me to talk about what Peter Ridd was like as a lecturer. So I was studying a bachelor's with a focus in maths and physics. So I took some subjects uh, with SC for the first year, um, which Peter had some involvement in. And then I had some subjects specifically with him in electromagnetism and oceanography in my later years as well. The maths and physics department at JCU isn't particularly large so mm. we had not very many lecturers to choose from for quite a few subjects so uh, almost every lecturer had some uh, fingers in almost every subject. Right so, so you dealt with Peter regularly over the course of a few years? Yeah just yeah pretty constantly. Um, actually we uh, and when I say we I mean like my co-classmates uh, and I um, there was about six of us and we sort of uh, took up home in second and third year in this little uh, room in the back of one of the older buildings in JCU. And that was actually right next to Peter's old office. Um, right. So we got to see him quite a lot because he would come there to pick up anything that he was like sitting in the old office or any of the equipment and stuff because it was just like a big storage room. What was he like just in those interactions? Uh... He's quite delightful. He's got a lot of... Um, a lot of interesting things to talk about and a lot of interesting perspectives. And he would always like take the time to just sort of sit with us and like talk about whatever was happening lately and like the different classes and stuff that he was doing. In um, lecturing, he was actually probably one of my favorite lecturers just because of the manner that he sort of like taught. Um, he was very sort of like back to basics. He'd take you through the, the content of um, what he was sort of teaching through um, like a document or a textbook or something like that. And he'd walk you through each sort of section and he'd be like, so how do you think about that? And you, then you sort of work through an example. Um, and it was really effective <laughs> teaching. Um, very much enjoyed that. Did his passion for science and for his field of study sort of shine through in those lectures? Absolutely. Right. He was like a very um, alive lecturer, very like excited about what he was teaching and like you could really get that in um, all of your interactions with him. I asked Hadassah whether climate change came up during these interactions with Peter. Yeah, so um, there's always there's two contexts which we sort of used to get to interact with, uh, mm. with Peter. Um, there was like the larger classes um, where there was, you know, two, 300 science students all sort of in a room together. Um, none of that stuff ever really came up there. He wasn't an ideologue, I suppose, or...? No, not at all. Um, there was, like, one conversation that we did have um, back, and this was once again in first year, um, we had that subject, um, uh, 1007, mm. um, and it was just six classmates and I in this tiny little hall and we would always like pin him down and we'd like get him to talk about interesting things. Um, so yeah, he never really talked about it of his own volition very much. Um, and certainly never in like a 
I'm teaching you the science because someone told me this, um, but I don't actually believe it. Mm. Um, it was always kind of just like, you know, you've got this evidence in front of you and as a scientist it's your responsibility to break down what you're seeing and like look back at the evidence and like you've got a responsibility for making sure that that evidence is up to scratch and the conclusions that you make and then you share with other people especially the non-scientific community are backed up you know Mm. you're not just making wild claims um and that was all really came back to who was just like talking about how um like what he'd seen and it's just like okay this isn't actually good science but yeah like it wasn't um pushing uh you know anti-climate change and stuff like that it was kind of like you know yes this is kind of like the conclusions that i've come to but like these are why and like Mm. you know this is my position is mostly just you know why are we letting bad science through and not you know really actually taking a look at what we're doing i am what you'd call a lukewarmer i think that the the co2 will have a small effect on the, the temperature but it won't be dangerous he does, however, reject the idea that the Great Barrier Reef is being killed by coral bleaching caused by climate change. Well, I don't think the, the reef is in any particular trouble at all. In fact, I think it's probably the best, one of the best um, protected ecosystems in the whole world and, and virtually pristine. Right, OK. And what can you tell me a bit about your thoughts on the specific effect of coral bleaching we hear so much about? Yeah. Look, coral bleaching has been going on from time immemorial. It's not a new phenomenon. Um, The amount of uh, coral that we lost in the last bleaching event was probably about 8% of the coral, which sounds like a lot. But um, when you consider that the southern area of the Great Barrier Reef had a 250% increase in the amount of coral after a big uh, hurricane cyclone went through, this is a very small 8% is a tiny amount. Right. what, what, so what's your theory on the cause of, of coral bleaching? Well, it is caused by high temperatures, but, you know, periodically you get a high a, a summer with very high temperatures and the coral bleaches. It's always happened. Mm. Um, the, the marine biologists are making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, it's, it's like a, a bushfire. It looks terrible. It's entirely natural. It grows back. It's been happening uh, since forever, basically. And your view is that corals actually respond better to warmer water anyway there's no doubt that corals grow much better in warmer water if you want to get to find the best corals you go to the area where the water is warmer which is indonesia papua new guinea where we have exactly the same corals we have on the great barrier reef the corals grow about twice as fast there than they do on the southern part of the great barrier reef where the water is is uh, colder if the great barrier reef isn't under threat from climate change why are there so many reports that it is according to peter the simple answer is bad science well, the fundamental problem with the quality of the science is almost nothing is, is checked. And when you do start checking it, you find these massive flaws. Possibly the, the biggest one was from the Australian Institute of Marine Science, where they claimed that the coral growth rates had reduced drastically. But when you actually correct all the errors that they'd made, in fact, if anything, it's increased. Um, another study by James Cook University claimed that the coral cover has reduced by 50% since the 1960s. But they won't even hand over their data. And when you do... They won't uh, hand it over? No, they won't even hand over the data. Why not? Well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when you then try to replicate their results, in fact, you can't replicate them either. So it's complete, you know, you'd have to say that that is highly dubious. And there are many other instances. For example, 
Um, I was just looking the other day at a, a, a particular pesticide which was claimed to be in quite significant concentrations on the reef that made an error of 100,000%. So I guess drawing it back to your um, your com- your complaint and your uh, you know what you basically got wrapped over the knuckles for this is this kind of bad science is ep- it's an epidemic in these institutions. It is. There's not only is the bad science demonstrably coming out in larger amounts but there's also demonstrably absolutely no commitment to try to fix problems when they're pointed out. As you say, it's not checked, tested or replicated? Nope, it's n- none of the above. And, um, and worse than that, when, when, you, when somebody else does chest, uh, check it and find it to be wrong, it's then covered up. This lack of quality assurance in scientific research is not limited to climate change, nor for that matter is Peter the only person to be raising such concerns. Professor David Vaux is Deputy Director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, one of Australia's leading medical research organisations. Professor Vo makes it very clear to me that his concern is with scientific misconduct, not general quality assurance issues. Still, Professor Vo's findings raise serious questions about the state of scientific research in Australia. So research misconduct or scientific misconduct is a deliberate dishonesty in your research. And so the traditional definition of research misconduct is fabrication of your results or uh, falsification of your results or plagiarising somebody else's uh, words, ideas or or, uh, results. If you accidentally um, uh, copy down the wrong number uh, or if you accidentally grab the same of two similar looking files uh, twice, then, uh, you know, accidents do happen. But uh, amongst any population of humans, there are also going to be some that deliberately do the wrong thing. How many research papers may have been compromised? Well, the thing is, nobody knows. So Australia is almost unique in the world in that we don't have a national office for research integrity. You've said that falsifying data is the easy way out. Uh, Can you explain to me what you mean by that? Well, uh, researchers are under a tremendous amount of pressure. And, um, you know, when when people have analysed the guilty findings by the Office of Research Integrity in the United States. They said they fell into um, three roughly equal-sized groups. Uh, One group was uh, often relatively young researchers who were under pressure to get that last figure so they think they know what the result should be and it doesn't quite work out and so they end up, you know, fudging things and, 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 uh, and making things up. Then the second group was kind of the lazy group. So this was often uh, people employed by, say, drug companies who uh, are told to analyse the serum of 20 rabbits and uh, they analyse, the, you know, take the blood of the first two or three and then the next rabbit scratches them and, the, you know, and it's getting late and so they just make up the results for the remainder of the rabbits. And then the last third and by far the most dangerous ones were the uh, were, were basic psychopaths. These were people who believed they knew what the truth was and, uh, and if the uh, results from themselves or from their students or postdocs didn't correspond to their expectations, then they would just make things up. That's extraordinary. So, and you're telling me that currently we don't have any way of knowing how prevalent any of those activities are in the course of research, of scientific research. No. So, you know, humans are basically equivalent around the world. So I would imagine that uh, Australian scientists are no more honest or dishonest than those in other countries. And to clarify, this it's not necessarily limited to medical research. It could be oh, any definitely kind of not. No, it could, could be research. any. Again, it's, it's human nature. So. You know, some, 
you know, and, and again, it's related also to, um, uh, to, to, to the incentives. When you say incentives, what do you mean by, by that? Well, the, the currency uh, for researchers, the way they get their prestige and the way they get their grants and the way they pay their mortgage is by publishing papers. And, uh, and if you uh, have an, you know, a sexy result, you can publish a paper in a glossy journal and, uh, and you can get, you get your fellowship and your grants and, uh, and fame and prizes and so forth. And uh, so some people, the, the temptation is too great to, 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 to do the wrong thing. Yeah, so what you're telling me basically is that for every scientific study that's proven to be manifestly false and based on scientific misconduct and bad science, yeah. there may be many, many others that are still floating out there that are used as the basis for government policy, as the uh, Absol- basis absolutely. of government absolutely. funding. As Peter explains, so-called peer review is not necessarily a great quality control mechanism. No, peer review is nothing what the public think it is, right? Mm. Peer review is usually when a couple of scientists review a a piece of work for often not more than a couple of hours, and they may actually be friends of the original scientists. Uh, The original work is never replicated, the experiment is never done again. They don't pour over the data or anything like that, it's just a cursory check. Mm. So uh, the public um, have been conned by a lot of scientists into thinking that peer review is something which it is not. And what sort of accuracy rate do you get on peer-reviewed papers? It's about 50% wrong. So when uh, recently, this has become a big scandal in science in the last uh, five or ten years, it's Mm. called the replication crisis. And in lots of areas, biomedical area, psychology, chemistry, even physics, when they do replication studies, Mm. they find that very roughly about half of the peer-reviewed work can't be repeated. It's got errors in it. 50%? 50%. It's a scandal. Right. And I, I'm amazed that more people don't know about this, in fact. Now, you've been critical of basing not, not just this being bad science, but the fact that it's led to poor policy choices and, more to the point, very expensive ones. Yes, that's right. I mean, in, in a sense, you know, most science is never used. Right? It's interesting. It might end up on catalysts or something like that. Mm. But it's when it's going to be used by governments if it hasn't been checked properly, then the government can waste an awful lot of money. And that's what's happening with the reef. Mm. It's probably what's happening with climate change and many, many other areas where governments are using science, which has just been peer-reviewed. This podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. For over 75 years, the IPA has been fighting to secure freedom for the next generation, with thousands of members across Australia. And now we have a special offer for fans of The Heretic. Join the RPA today and receive exclusive subscriber-only content, such as extended interviews with Peter Ridd and many of the other people interviewed for this podcast. All that plus the other benefits of RPA membership, including our quarterly magazine, the RPA Review, priority access and discounted ticket prices to RPA events, regular email updates from the RPA team, and more. Just head to rpa.org.au forward slash join. And now, back to The Heretic. In late 2015, Peter decided to speak out about his concerns about the quality of climate science surrounding the Great Barrier Reef. In particular, Peter was concerned with what became known as the before and after photos, a pair of photos frequently used by the ARC Centre of Excellence, which is based at JCU. The before photo was from the late 1800s, showing a beautiful reef full of coral. The after photo was a more recent picture, supposedly showing no reef at all. The before and after photos were used in many publications as proof that climate change was destroying the Great Barrier Reef. But according to Peter, the photos are highly misleading. 
I sent an email to a journalist from the, the Courier-Mail essentially to, to tell him that some very famous photographs which supposedly showed a, a coral reef in about 1890 and, uh, and also today going from lo having lots of coral to having no coral. And this always seemed like a strange thing. And I sent my guys down to see whether the coral had really disappeared, which it was supposed to have done. And of course it hadn't. There was fantastic coral near Bowen where these w were. And, and the scientists putting out this information never did that, that check in person. No, and they still haven't retract, retracted, you know, in a annual reports where these photographs have been used mm. for, for these organisations. It's still never been retracted. And even after I demonstrated that these photographs were completely wrong, I'd have to sit through, you know, workshops and seminars where they still use supposedly to show that these reefs were, were badly damaged. Like Peter, IPA senior fellow Dr Jennifer Marahassi has taken an interest in the before and after photos, which have so often been put forward as evidence of the damage that climate change is doing to the Great Barrier Reef. To a large extent, this saga really did begin with Peter questioning the veracity of what are known as the before and after photographs. So the, these photographs um, fit into the broader narrative about catastrophe at the Great Barrier Reef and they've been used extensively as examples of reef ruin. This is the evidence that people are showing up to show that the reef is dying and it's being, that it won't exist when Barack Obama's daughters are old enough to visit it and so on. I mean, that, that, that's, that's I the I think the Barack Obama's image. daughters are old enough to visit, <laughs> but they haven't gone to the trouble of visiting. Yeah. Now, I was there, talking about visiting the reef, I was there at Easter time just a few months ago, and I went specifically to find Bramston Reef. Mm. And what I found was mudflat. There is mudflat there. And I walked across the mudflat. Then I walked across the reef flat. Mm. And then I found coral. Right. I would suggest, and I'm going to go back and map the area, mm. but I would suggest there's perhaps 100 hectares of coral mm. Mm. at this site. This site that supposedly was supposed to be all mudflat and, uh, and all basically wiped out. There is mudflat, mm. then there's reef flat, and then there's perhaps 100 hectares of coral. So what causes the mudflat? Is that, is that part of a natural cycle or a natural effect? When you're talking about reef that's fringing yep. the coastline, it's very normal to very get normal. mud flat and then to get reef flat and then to get uh, a zone of coral and the coral is, is, is growing out and it's growing t to the southeast. So the situation there mm. where you've got mud flat, where you've got reef flat, where you've got back reef and then where you've got a, a, an extraordinary diversity of hard and soft corals, that's typical. Why they misrepresented it, it's extraordinary that they could misrepresent the situation as they did. So, so in other words, it's not an environmental wasteland, it's actually a, a, a natural occurring phenomenon with its own ecosystem. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's extraordinary that nowadays people seem to have an aversion to a bit of mud. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Or hold um, it up as evidence of some sort of catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, whereas in actual fact, um, yeah. you know, mudflats and, and, and rock pools, they're really exciting places fr oh. from a biological perspective. Yeah. Do you think there's any uh, element or do you think there's any sense in which some of these scientists using these photos are being deliberately disingenuous? Look, all I can say is that it's extraordinary to allege 
that there's no uh, coral at Bramston Reef anymore because there's lots of coral. Peter contacted journalist Peter Michael to blow the whistle on the misuse of the before and after photos. He said that the photos were a dramatic example of how scientific organisations are quite happy to spin a story for their own purposes. I contacted this journalist to, with the photographs to show that these very famous photographs, which are often claimed to show this massive damage from farmers to the reef, were completely wrong. Right. Um, what did you mean when you said in that email that scientific organisations are quite happy to spin a, spin a story for their own purposes? I said to the journalists that they that the organisations will often spin a story for their own purposes. Essentially, these photographs were a great pictorial example demonstrating that the reef was completely trashed. Um, so that was their purpose. They wanted to demonstrate it and they used it. But I, And I, I said that they don't do enough quality assurance. They should have gone down to make sure that these photographs were really telling a true story, which, of course, they weren't. Importantly... One of the organisations that Peter was referring to was the ARC Centre of Excellence in Coral Reef Studies, which was headquartered at James Cook University. The journalist passed Peter's email on to Professor Terry Hughes, the director of the ARC Centre of Excellence, asking him to comment on the story. Tell me about the reaction to that email by Terry Hughes. Well, I don't know exactly what it was, but he, he complained to the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and uh, then I got hit with these misconduct allegations for what I had said. I just got a, a, a telephone call that there was a, a problem and then I got a brown envelope with the allegations and I had to respond to those. What were his allegations? Uh, that I'd been uncollegial, um, that I'd brought the place into disrepute, I guess. Right. What, what, what was his specific problem i was never told right <laughs> no i was never told exactly what his problem was i got an interpretation of that by the uh, deputy vice chancellor's office so you never saw the evidence against you i don't know exactly well, the case against you. I, I still don't know exactly what his problem was the coral was there the coral wasn't dead and this is the thing you know he'd been caught red-handed saying the coral was dead when the coral wasn't dead so all he could do is cry to the headmaster. The headmaster then tells me I'm not allowed to talk to anybody about this. So nobody will know, except that eventually I just decided to ignore that. No effort was made to, to see whether I had a, you know, a, a decent argument, which clearly I had because it was just uh, so obvious. It just went straight to discipline, but not just discipline, but also silencing. Mm. And that is actually more, um, much more damaging than the disciplining. So you were in effect... Uh, prevented from telling the truth or prohibited from telling the, the, what was, in effect, the truth? Yes, I think that's exactly what happened. And did the university at any point try to to settle the substantive science-based complaints or was it...? No, I, none of that has ever been done. Instead of debating the issue, JCU railroaded Peter into the university's opaque and procedurally dubious disciplinary process. An investigation was launched, eventually finding that by going to the media to criticise the work of a university colleague, Peter had committed official misconduct. Among other things, the university found that Peter had failed to, quote, act in a collegial way, respect the reputations of other colleagues, and uphold the integrity and good reputation of the university. So, again, you denied the allegations in Terry Hughes's complaint, and what happened then? Well, I... I I basically just got a, a misconduct 
Uh, it didn't matter what I said. I was always going to get the misconduct, I think. So tell me about the disciplinary process in, in particular, you know, your dealings with university administrators, HR people. What did that look like blow by blow? Well, you it, it's it's a kangaroo court. You know, you 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 do have a, a chance to respond. You respond, but you don't have um, it, it just doesn't seem to make any difference what you say. That's the problem. Well, on what specific grounds do they find misconduct? So I brought, um, I was uncollegial. So this was based on their code of conduct? Yes, there was a code of conduct and I'd apparently broken it by telling the truth about the science and that the fact that these guys were effectively not telling the truth. And, and the finding was that you'd failed to uphold the reputation of the university? Uh, I think that was it. There was quite. A, there were so many things. There was five or five or six things that I'd done. Why did the university feel it was necessary to react in such a heavy-handed way to what was, in effect, a strongly worded point of scientific disagreement? Look, I don't know. I mean, you've really got to ask the university that. I, I suppose there was growing um, antagonism against me because I was saying more and more that there's a problem with this science. Uh, and he was something which was absolutely demonstrable that they were wrong and that they decided they need to nip it in the bud before it got any worse. But that's just me speculating. Jennifer, do you think there are others who share Peter's views about climate change and the Great Barrier Reef and are afraid to speak out? Oh, absolutely. There, there are many scientists uh, who share his views. Um, but are afraid to speak out. I mean, there are so many closet skeptics in politics, in the business community, um, journalism. A lot of these people say to me, well, you're swimming against the tide, you're swimming against the zeitgeist, mm. and you risk drowning, Jen. Like, you know, it's, it's, you're going against the tide, mm. and that's a risky thing to do. And because they can see how risky it is, they prefer not to speak up, not to speak out. But Peter Ridd did continue to speak out. It would eventually trigger a long and ugly brawl with the university and eventually cost Peter his job. The outcome of the complaint was that I got a misconduct uh, charge against me and told that if I did it again, it could be serious misconduct, which would mean that I could be fired. And of course, that's what ultimately happened in 2017. I did it again. <laughs> on the next episode of The Heretic, an interview on Sky News triggers a wave of new allegations against Peter. Well, I was duly summoned to the, uh, the Dean's office and given a, a brown paper envelope with the allegations that I'd said the things that I'd said and that it was serious misconduct and that meant that they could fire me if it was found to be true. And JCU's disciplinary processes reached terrifying new lows. Uh, it was just crazy. I, I think they just lost all sense of reasonableness in the end in there just chasing and hunting. It felt like I, I was just being hunted like mm. an animal. As the university administration does everything it can to shut Peter up. I just find it, it uh, is somehow associated with a, with a sense of, of arrogance, a sense of their own pride, their refusal to accept that someone else may have a better take on the situation than they have. But as we find out, JCU has form, as shown in its treatment of the late Professor Bob Carter. He was damaging their line of research funding. 
That's, uh, well, that's all I can put it down to. And they couldn't rebut what he actually said. And frighteningly, we hear that interference with academic freedom might not be limited to just JCU, or for that matter, just issues around climate science. They are so focused on uh, prestige, on uh, brand reputation, on you know, uh, positive, positive press. It's all about their reputation. It's all about attracting the next set of students. But they simply can't be trusted on issues like academic freedom. This episode of The Heretic has been written and presented by me, Gideon Rosner, and produced by Saul Muscatel and Mitchell Schomburg, and brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support the work of the RPA or to join as a member, please visit rpa.org.au.